Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by John Zalzirny, uh, who is the president of feature film production and literary management at Bellevue. Thank you for being on the show, John. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm going to read your I'm going to read your uh, bio here on your website. It's uh, it's very impressive. I'm going to pick and choose if there's if there's something I miss, please jump in and, and let me know. Uh, but your uh, your clients writing credits and directing credits include Infinite, Parallel, Eli, Bad Match, Better Watch Out, Heavy Trip, Office Uprising, Splinter, A Crooked Somebody and others. Um, the Your your clients have uh, written feature scripts that are set up at Warner Brothers, Paramount. Fox, Lionsgate, New, basically everyone, every, everyone. You, you've got them all over the place. But the, the, the reason I had reached out to you and the reason I was uh, very interested in getting you on is because you had a very good thread a couple of weeks back when the blacklist selections were announced and your, your clients had a number of uh, folks on the blacklist. And uh, I want to talk about that because I don't think people out in the real world who aren't connected to the industry understand exactly what the blacklist is and how important it is for screenwriters of all stripes, but especially screenwriters who are just getting started, who are starting out. Um, so let's let's talk about that. What What is The Blacklist, and how do you get your clients' work on it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny um, because I remember when, you know, I first hit a client on the annual Blacklist, my father was like, that's a good thing, you know, because <laughs> it's usually not a term that's used in a positive way, which is why Franklin uh, Leonard, who created it, was so brilliant to kind of recontextualize uh, the the phrase, the word. Uh, you know, the first thing I would say is there's two different blacklists, which can be a little confusing. It's one of the first things I talked to you about. There is the annual blacklist, which is kind of how it originally started, which Franklin kind of started. He was uh, looking for some scripts that he should read over the holiday break. Um, and he pulled his his uh, kind of peers and they all voted and sent him a listing and he shared that information. And it was something that was received very well because people are like, oh, this is crowdsourced. What is good, you know, and Franklin eventually turned that uh, turned into an annual thing, um, which eventually became a, a business. And so the the annual list is voted on by I don't know how many, but professionals in the industry, I should note, not representatives, not agents or managers, um, but producers, studio executives. Um, those are the people I, I believe. And again, I don't work for the blacklist, so I don't know the voting criteria, but they vote on it. Um, and then the scripts that they, you know, whoever gets the most vote is kind of then a number one script and then they're, they're ranked. And I, and I believe you have to get seven votes to get on the list. It's either six or seven or eight. I, f I forget. But if you get six or seven or eight, whatever the number that I'm blanking on, uh, you then get on this annual list. And just to, to clarify, uh, there is a website called The Blacklist, and that's different. That is where writers can pay a fee to have their script hosted on there and then pay additional fee to get a a review of the script. Um, and if the script gets a good enough review, I believe an eight or higher, it is then the logline is sent out, um, disseminated to a bunch of producers and representatives. So there's two different sites, one that you pay to put your script up and another one that's kind of an annual list of the most well-liked scripts of the year. Um, so just to kind of clarify those two differences, because sometimes people get very confused and they think mm. that in order to get on the annual blacklist, you need to have hosted your script on the website. And that is not the case. There has been the case, and I have personally experienced it, that a script that um, I found on the blacklist website was then, you know, so good that I signed the person and we got it out to the rest of the town and it ended up being on the annual blacklist. So, um, but the two things aren't necessarily connected, except that the, the you know, the same parent organization um, 
you know, oversees them both. Um, mm-hmm. So the annual blacklist, you know, the reason it's been really helpful is um, Hollywood loves to be told, uh, you know, what's good, right? Uh, you know, it's funny, you know, in this in this space that we now have, I, I feel like, um, I don't know, I would say a filter, but there's a better word for it. I mean, it's what reviewers have always been. I mean, the people like, you should see this movie, you shouldn't see this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you look for someone, you know, if you're if you're at the movie theaters and, you know, you there's 10 movies, you're, you're going to say, hey, what have you heard about this one? Have you heard that one's good? Have you heard that one's good? You're looking for some kind of reference point um, on it. Um, and so, you know, if there's an annual list that says, here are the scripts that, you know, 200 300 executives all thought was the best this one got the most votes well heck it must be good you know or certainly must be worth reading it and trying to understand why that script got the acclaim that it got um and so it you know i think it can be very helpful in drawing attention to um scripts that you know maybe didn't sell initially or didn't get enough attention um one thing i really would specifically say is that you know, um, spec screenplays, that is screenplays that were written on speculation, um, that were written, you know, were not paid to be written. Um, you know, there used to be a very vibrant marketplace for them. Certainly when I came into the industry in the early 2000s and, um, you know, certainly before that, going back into the 80s and the 90s in particular, um, that marketplace has declined significantly, um, partially due to changing trends, focus on, you know, IP, you know, well-known IP um, for many reasons. Um, and so, you know, not as many specs sell uh, like they used to. I remember when I first came into the industry, it felt like a million dollar spec sold twice a month. Now mm-hmm. I don't think it happens once a year or certainly I, I can't think of the last one. Um, and so, you know, it used to be, well, why should I read this? Right? Well, they just sold a million dollar spec to Sony or something. Um, nowadays, because so few specs sell, how do I, you know, how does a representative get uh, a, a writer on people's radars? How do you make people aware of them? Well, one way to do that is to get them on that annual blacklist. You know, if you are a very fancy producer or studio executive, you don't have the time to read a bunch of things. Um, if you're like, so if a rep calls up and says, his script is good, well, okay, well, every rep says that. But if they say, hey, this was number one on the blacklist or landed on the annual blacklist, well, it's already kind of been peer approved, if you will. Um, and it certainly gives um, a certain amount of resonance to their claims. So I think that's why it's been um, something that has been received so well is that A, you know, the industry always looks to things like that for, you know, it's like a movie, you know, we had a client's movie um, that, uh, you know, got a lot got a lot of acclaim out of a festival and suddenly people are really, really paying attention to it. Whereas prior to that, it was difficult to get them to pay attention. But once a bunch of reviewers said the movie was good, well, then people paid attention. It's kind yeah. of in that sense, you're looking for someone to kind of pre-approve something and then, well, you're going to pay attention. Um, and you couple that with the decline in the spec market and, and, and making it harder to distinguish um, up and coming writers. Uh, I think the two things kind of fed into each other. Yeah. I want to come back to the decline in the spec market in, in a second, because it's it is an interesting shift in the marketplace. Um, but let's just let's just like if you were if you were sitting down with one of your writers uh, on your on your roster at, at Bellevue and they're like, yeah, you, John, you got to help me get this on the blacklist. Come on, mm-hmm. it's great. We all know it's great. What what do I need to do to get it there? What how do you coach them beyond saying, well, write well? Right. That, that you know, do do a good job writing and then we'll we'll go from there. 
You know, I would say the kind of scripts that end, in the black, end up on the blacklist, it's kind of like what's a Sundance movie. It, you know, if I was like, oh, man, this Michael Bay movie is going to get into Sundance, you'd be like, that seems unlikely. Because um, <laughs> when we think of Sundance movies, we think of a certain kind of movie. The same way that when we think of an Oscar movie, we think of a certain kind of movie. Um, scripts that end up on the blacklist tend to be not always, but more often than not kind of quirky less commercial um but you know that said snow and the huntsman was on the blacklist so uh so you know so it's a script infinite that i produced that my client ian Shaw wrote so it's not always that but more often than not it is that the same way that sundance you know i think the raid was a midnight sundance movie or am i wrong was that a slam dancer South by it's either South. that or TIFF or right, and so my yeah. point being, like, you wouldn't think of the raid as a festival movie per se, but it was. So you know, I don't want to say all blacklist scripts are a certain way, but you know, if if, if someone had a great horror script um, and it was a relatively straightforward horror script, I'd be like, look, let's just try to sell this one and get it made. I, you know, if it ends up the blacklist, great. I've had horror scripts end up in the blacklist numerous times, but it's not the given that it would be, say, for a more quirky or out there script. You know, to some degree, because executives, they read, I don't know, like 200 horror scripts a year. Maybe they only read like 20 or 30 quirky kind of biopics or something like that. So they're a little less burnt out on it and it feels more interesting to them. So, you know, first it would be with the, the choice of subject matter. Um, I, you know, let's say I've had a fair number of music biopics on there. Fleetwood Mac, Madonna, so on. Um, one of my colleague, Kate Sharper, client just did a Shania Twain biopic on there. Um, so let's talk about music, for example, like subject matter. I had a, someone I was working with who really wanted to put Chris, Chris, do a Chris Christopherson biopic. Now, Chris Christopherson actually is an incredible story, but I think the reality is I don't know how resonant he is to people in their 20s or 30s right now, which, you know, are the kind of executives who are reading the kind of CEs and VPs who are reading and judging for the blacklist. Um, and so that was something where I was like, I don't know that's going to re- the res. I was talking to a manager friend re- uh, recently or a couple years ago. And he was like, why did you want to, I want to do the Chris Christopherson one? Why did you do Fleetwood Mac? I was like, is your assistant on the line? He's like, yeah, she is. I'm like, oh, and he's like, no, she isn't. But I can ask her. I was like, ask her if she knows who Chris Christopherson is. He's like, no, she's shaking her head. I'm like, ask her if she knows who Fleetwood Mac is. He goes, oh, she just started singing one of their songs. So like, you know, that that's, yeah. you want to cho- choose choice and subject matter. Um, and I would say the next one would be timing of when I, we take it out. More often than not, we're going to take it out. The blacklist voting is in November. We're going to try and take it out in September, October, closer to the blacklist voting. The same way that an Oscar movie, you didn't take it out in March. You take it out closer to the, the Academy voting. So you end up in the fall, you know. Now, look, I've taken out scripts in March, April that did end up in the blacklist, you know, but that's maybe because they sold or some other thing happened or, you know. So that's just, again, it's not a rule. It's just kind of like, good thinking. Um, and then I would say the last point is maybe the most obvious point, which is, you know, if we want to get a script in the blacklist, we're going to disseminate it as broadly as we possibly can. Um, so I've had a client, you know, recently was like, oh, why didn't we get the script in the blacklist? I'm like, well, because we only took it to four producers, you know, mm-hmm. like, so like, that's not enough people to get it onto the list because we wanted to be, that was the strategy for the script. We wanted to be more on point about it. Mm-hmm. So it, it really depends that you know, want to get it as broad as possible so that, you know, if I take a script to 50 people, maybe, you know, 10% of that or not I mean 10%, maybe 20% of that vote for the script. And then we have 10 votes or something. And How also it has to be good. Is, the next the well, final thing yeah. is hey, it's right. got to be good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you think of these as like actual campaigns? I mean, you mentioned the Oscars and that's, you know, that has its own campaign rhythm, et cetera. Or, or is it just kind of, 
a thing that happens and and everybody is is grateful for it. Because, I mean, you mentioned with the one writer, he's like, why isn't this on the blacklist? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you take it out to the producers you want to produce it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's different than, you know, blasting it out to everyone and saying, hey, you got to read this. This is this Yeah, is I mean, there's perfect. different strategies for different scripts. You know, we had a script that was on the blacklist this year called A Hufflepuff Love Story. That was kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern meets Palm Springs story set in the Harry Potter universe. We're not going to sell that, you know, most likely, unless Warner Brothers somehow incongruously decided they want to do it. But it was incredibly talented writer, Sofia Lopez, who loved the Harry Potter universe and felt like it was a way for her to write her rom-com script and get it out there to people who are looking for rom-com scripts. And they would think of her as a writer for them going forward, you know. Um, So that was kind of the, the thinking behind that. Um, on that one, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the original question. I was like, before. No, I, no. Yeah. Well, just in terms of in terms of strategies. I mean, right, is it, yeah, there's is different it, is strategies it, yeah. for different scripts. I would say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and so you're asking about a campaign. You know, uh, one of the funny things is I am super open about my personal belief and strategy in terms of getting scripts on the blacklist. It's funny. I had a manager, call, you know, a, you know, it's funny. Managers are very um, chummy and talk to each other all the time or supportive of each other. It's funny. It's like different from agents where it's not so much the same, but he was like, what's your secret? You know, cause I had, you know, the, the two number one scripts in a row in 2020 and 2021. Um, and I had another one in 2016 and he's like, what was your strategy? And I'm like, Strategy is exactly what I just described to you, um, and I don't have any campaign, you know, other than taking it out closer to the the date. I don't like. There's no people in, in the Twitter. I was like, oh, what are the deals that are cut underneath? And like, I, I just I don't have the time to do that. And I certainly don't do it. It's just it's weird. Uh, the only thing I do is the day that the votes ballots go out is I email people and say, hey, by the way, I remember that you liked this script. You should maybe vote for it, and that's it. I just remind people that they read the script. Um, and maybe there's a couple other scripts they could read if they'd like to. And that's it. I, it's one email. It's a reminder. You know, yeah. that's that's about the length of it. I, I think the idea of, of of a campaign is, you know, it's it's just it's not the Oscars. It's not anything like that. Um, and people are going to do what they're going to do. Um, and all you can do is put material in front of them and hope that they connect with the, the person, you know, especially for my, someone like myself where I, I think I, as a manager, had six scripts on the list there. I'm not, I don't have the time to go and cut deals for every every single script. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not possible that someone might not do something shady. Certainly anything mm-hmm. is possible, but um, on a widespread thing, it doesn't make, honestly, fiscal sense because I don't get a, you know, it's my company. So, but anyways, yeah. I don't get any kind of, you know, financial bonus every time a script gets on the, on the, on the blacklist. It doesn't work that way. Right. But you do. I mean, assuming that it it helps get the script sold or your your clients hired, there is a there is some some minor. There's there's definitely you know. <laughs> there's definitely um, and there can be. I'll put it like that. There can yeah. be. I've had I've had clients get scripts in the blacklist, couldn't get an agent afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. um, one of the things I talk a lot about is you know if the script is getting your work out there into the larger world. What are what are the opportunities that come out of that? So my wife, Elise Hollander, wrote a script called Blonde Ambition, which was the number one script on the 2016 blacklist, which was a biopic of Madonna um, kind of breaking through in the early 1980s. Um, and of course, as you might expect, that resulted in a lot of people coming to her for music biopics and music oriented movies. So she's written a number of those. She's written other things, but she's written a number of those. Um, and so, you know, if you are writing a certain kind of script, it's going to put your work out there into the world. And A, is that kind of stuff that you want to do? Because you're going to get offered it a lot. And secondly, you know, is there a market for that? You know, and I think if it's a straight up drama script, 
they don't make as many of those anymore. And so sometimes even if you get on the blacklist for the script, it doesn't necessarily result in a flood of opportunities because there aren't a flood of opportunities to have necessarily. And so that is something to, to think about really is, you know, sometimes it just gets people, the writer and people's writers, but then you have to follow it up with the next script or the next opportunity. So, you know, you can put someone into the game, but the hope is that there are opportunities for them to follow up on and also that they can take advantage of being having their 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 time in the spotlight and follow it up with something that is saleable, you know, because that yeah. it's really about is, is getting a client paid at the end of the day and making them a professional writer. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that, because I, I do think that, you know, people people don't have a really good sense of what a writer's life is like. You know, we know the stories of the Shane Blacks and that and that sort sort of. But, but on an average, you know, uh, workaday writer, what is what is that career track like? And uh, you as a manager and, and working for or I guess, you know, owning a, a management company, um, how is that different than uh, what an agent does and what an agency does? Right. Well, I mean, look, the agent manager question is probably the biggest question that I think most people who are not um, in the industry, and even sometimes even when they are, they have a hard time understanding it. Um, the simple simple way to think about it is that, and in my experience, more often than not, an agent has like hundreds of clients and they are mostly focused on selling their existing material and putting them for opportunities. They are less involved in working with them on a day-to-day basis. Um, I see my role and look, there are a lot of managers and a lot of managers manage differently. Some operate more like agents, some I don't know, producers, you know, for me, I'm, it's almost like the Jerry Maguire methodology, fewer clients, more focus on working with them, developing material. That's certainly my skill set is working with them close. Um, the big difference is agents are licensed by the, the state, so they cannot produce, um, which got you into the whole ATA production company issue um, a couple of years ago. Um, managers can produce, they are not licensed by the state. Um, so that, you know, can be a cause for concern. And it's just also just, it's, it's, it gives you more flexibility for people that they like to produce. I occasionally produce, I have a pretty strict rule about producing, which is, you know, inherently it has to be my idea or an idea that I bring to a client. So in the case of Infinite, it was a book called The Reincarnationist Papers that I optioned and brought to Ian Shore to write. So, you know, things like that more often than not. Sometimes I'll come on if I've really been like working on a script for two to three years and have radically changed the idea from where it originally was. But more often than not, I try to be pretty strict about it. Personally, I, I think there's two kinds of managers. There are managers who occasionally produce, which is where I would put myself, um, and then producers who occasionally manage, which is some other people. Um, so that's kind of the the, the question about that. In terms of the day-to-day of a writer, I mean, I, I'm married to one in, in addition to repping, representing writers. So I have a pretty close look at it. There's a great um, Twitter thread by a writer called Colby Day who actually did a Medium post about um, his kind of life, uh, a year in his life, I think 2021. That's worth checking out. Um, that really goes into detail every month about what he did, worked on that month and, and where it came to fruition. Um, a lot of it is working on opportunities. So there are things called OWAs or open writing assignments and writers, their studios or financiers and people that have money will say, hey, we are looking for someone to adapt this book or we're looking for a snowboarding movie or whatever. 
Um, and then you'll go to writers. We'll send them a bunch of writers. They'll say, okay, we like this writer and that writer. Can they come in and pitch us a take on this book or whatever? And the writer has to obviously like the book as well. And so then they come and they pitch their take and then maybe they pitch it to producer. Producer says, I like it, change the stuff about it. And they change it and then the producer changes more stuff and then changes more. So then they go pitch the studio and the studio, maybe the studio gives them some thoughts and they come back. They could pitch to the VP and this, the VP says to change this thing about it before you go to the president of the company and they go to the president and they bring the president like three, maybe four writers. And then maybe they pick one of those people or maybe they say, I don't like any of them and they don't. <laughs> or or suddenly the, the president gives it to their best buddy who's a writer director, you know, yeah. so like and but think about it. Like I named those like three or four writers got brought to the president. There probably were like 12 to 15 who didn't even get that far, you know. And yeah. by the way, when I'm saying they pitch the producer, I'm talking about months of work, you know. And by the way, at the end of the day, because it's based on a book, any of that work that you did, you don't own it. I mean, well, it's not that you don't own it. You can't do anything with it because it's based on this book that you do not own, you know. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot of doing that, which is why I try to be select. I encourage my clients to be selective about the OWAs that they uh, engage on um you know there's developing ideas with with producers there's maybe writing your own spec screenplay um going up if you're tv you're going up for staffing jobs to try and staff on various tv shows you're doing a lot of general meetings which is when you meet with producers executives sometimes directors or actors um to talk about potentially ways that you could work together um so you know that that that's a lot of kind of what the writer's life is it's rarely the same thing day in and day out. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty um, to it. And, you know, and there also is this idea sometimes you have a script that you take out and it dies. And then a year later, suddenly someone's like, hey, remember that script? I showed it to this director. They love it. Let's get going again on it, you know? So there's a lot of ups and downs to it. And I really tell my clients there's only two things you can control in this world, um, in this industry. And it is the quality of the material you put into the world and the quantity of it, as in how often. You know, I'd rather have a client put out one, maybe two scripts a year that are like A plus quality or A minus or whatever, than put out four scripts that are C plus quality, you know? Um, uh, so that's really, that's beyond that, you have no control how your scripts will be received, what will sell, what will not sell, what job you'll get, what job you don't get. You know, I, I had a client who was pitching on a big uh, a project. They got really far along. Producer loved them. Studio loved them. And then the director was like, actually, I've decided that I'm going to rewrite the script myself, even mm -hmm. though that had not been the plan previously, you know, uh, and they wasted everyone's time, you know. Uh, and then shortly after that, I heard they got kicked off. But, you know, <laughs> it was just it's one of those things where there's so much uncertainty in the business. It can be super frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am always shocked when I talk to my like successful writer friends who are working in feature films Proceed and you know I, yes. <laughs> I, I think fair to say well, I'm not I, trying to I'm not from, trying to I'm not trying to from not, my perspective yeah, that's exactly, I'm yeah. not trying to like diminish your friends I'm just saying like if you talk to those writers that you're a successful person they go really it doesn't feel like yeah. that every day <laughs> well but this is but this is you know usually what they say is like I, well I you know I just lost a bake-off to this other guy over here and I don't think I don't think people I certainly did not until uh, you know, I started talking to, to folks a little more about this, but I, I did not appreciate just how much of the job is is auditioning for work. It's yeah. not it's not sitting down and writing. It's it's going to somebody and essentially asking for permission to write and then writing and then uh, comparing that work with like five other people who have all written similar takes on it. 
so I, one of my first jobs was working for a writer called Andrew Marlowe, who wrote Air Force One, Hallman, End of Days, Wanted to Create Castle, now co-runs um, The Equalizer with his wife, Terry Miller, also a writer. Um, and so I worked for Andrew and Terry. Um, and I remember talking to Andrew uh, and I asked him, I was like, what percentage of a writer's career do you think is based around their actual talent? And what do you think, or their, their writing skill, and what percentages do you think is based around their ability to be great in a room. I want to say Andrew said something like 70% was being great in a room and 30% was the talent. I don't remember the exact specifics, but I was like more like 60, 40 and he went beyond that, I think. Um, and the talent is what gets you in the room with the people, but there's a lot of talented people. So what distinguishes you? It can be your ability to get in the room. I remember someone was telling me about a very successful writer who's now a writer, director, producer. And they were like, he can get in the room with five people with different agendas and come back out and make them all feel heard and deliver pages that make them all feel heard. He's like, the, the person was telling me, the pages won't be amazing, but they will make everyone feel like they were listened to. I think it's funny when you think about writers, you think about Charlie Kaufman and the awkwardness and things like that. But the reality is successful feature writers um, can oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes be very, very, you know, uh, charismatic forces. Of it, and they often turn into directors, you know, mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, the Aaron Sorkins of the world, um, Scott Frank, et cetera, et cetera. They often become writer or directors or showrunners because they have a real force of nature personality, um, which, you know, is not what you often ascribe to screenwriters. Um, but I think it is an, it is, it is a necessity well, maybe not necessity is a, it is certainly a, it can be a, a value add for a writer to have that personality and sometimes can cover up writing talent. Maybe that doesn't match the quality of someone else who is not quite as charismatic. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit. I, I wanted to come back to this, the, 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 the decline of the spec script market. I mean, is this, uh, on the one hand, you look at the world of filmmaking and film distribution and you see like, all right, we've got Netflix, we've got HBO Max, we've got Hulu, uh, you know, we've got an entire indie uh, studio ecosystem. Like, surely there are, there's more stuff than ever, and there's only so many intellectual Do we property. Really, have an indie, sy- indie studio system ecosystem. <laughs> this, well, so this is this is part of the question, right? Is that what what has wh- why uh, from your POV as as somebody who's worked in the industry for you know uh, for all this time for twenty some years, what has happened? to the world of filmmaking that has narrowed the focus uh, so much that that spec if you if you write a great spec script everybody's just going to say yeah but but why would i make this i think the biggest thing is the decline of the dvd market the dec- the dvd market allowed for um a lot of mid budget movies to get made um, without a focus on foreign revenue and that allowed if you made a movie and it made 20 million dollars it was almost guaranteed to make 20 million dollars in dvd domestic dvd revenue so you could make movies that were mid budget that were aimed towards the domestic market you know and so that opened up and so when you're thinking of the foreign marketplace you're more often thinking less specific things like cultural specific things like comedies or dramas you know when you're thinking the foreign marketplace you're thinking horror thriller action because that is something that tends to travel a little more widely or at least is perceived as such um and so that's one thing 
and they tend to, you know, want, you know, the same kind of stars. And, you know, the, 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 the idea out there, rightly or wrongly, is that the Ford marketplace is slower to catch up uh, to the um, – uh, to where the domestic marketplace, someone, someone could be a star in America, but it may take a couple of years for them to become a star around the world. Like, let's say I'm going to pull a name out of a hat. Um, Margaret Qualley, who is a phenomenal actress and anyone would be incredibly fortunate to have her lead their movies, but there might be a perception that she's not a worldwide star yet. Cause she hasn't been in a Marvel movie or something. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that's, uh, that's kind of part of the issue. You know, I mean, another big thing has been the relentless focus um, since 2008 on on IP, you know, Um, and this idea that we want to make big, you know, why make $100 million when you can make a billion dollars, you know, that sort of thinking um, that is kind of geared towards it. Now, you might be like, well, Netflix and all these other places, they make a lot of smaller movies. Um, What is kind of seems like it's happened, certainly lately in the marketplace, is that those places are less interested in movies that are just clean spec scripts. And what I mean by that is like a script that doesn't have a director or an actor involved. They are in the business of making movies. And so they want movies to come to them with a director and an actor, maybe more than one actor. And so they just press a button and say, go. And so that results in a lot more having to do this work independent before you get to the studio, putting people on these movies, doing things like that, you know? And it's just, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And the studios are less interested in development. You know, the streamers are very disinterested in development. They want finished things that they can just say Mm -hmm. yes to. And if it's not a finished thing, like, I think if I brought them a big toy brand or something, if I'm like, hey, guess what? I have Castlevania, not that, my buddy does it, but like Mario, (laughs) Super Mario or something, you know, they would be like, oh yeah, we'll develop that. But like, they're not interested in like an original script necessarily. It happens, don't get me wrong, it does happen. But the frequency which which happens it's just not as much as it used to be, you know, for example, horror scripts, they're, they're, you know, those do sell, but often they're like, well, who's the director? How do we get this made? And so it, it feels to me like there's much more impatience and there's less of the development work that people used to do. You know, it's, it feels like it's been a gradual process, but it's kind of like that line, uh, God, is it East of Eden Steinbeck? where it says, you know, how did you go broke, you know, slowly than all at once, you know, and that's yeah. what it feels like the change in the, in the, in the spec market has been, it's been a slow decline. And then all at once, you know, and it, it, it does feel very, very difficult to spell feature spec screenplays nowadays. Yeah. Whenever you see a, a, a script get sold, it's usually like, because Brad Pitt is attached yeah. and, you know, uh, I don't know. I and forget, by the way, if it's, the... if it's got some big star attached that it got written a year or two earlier because it took that long to like all the pieces right. to come together M- more often. Right. I mean, look, if it's written by an incredibly well-known writer, if it's written by like Billy Ray or something, then like that goes to the top of the pile because, you know, he is a phenomenal, well-known writer, writer, director, you know. Um, but if it's written by a nobody, it's a lot harder to get traction. It can happen. Don't get me wrong. But it is it happens much less often. And. It's just difficult, you know? Yeah. I mean, would you say that spec scripts are more or less just tryout pieces for other things at this point? I would say that's a reasonable expectation to have, I would say. It's certainly not how I approach the material. I try to sell every single script. But what I, I guess I, what I wanted to do is to do both. I want it to be a potential, potential piece of business as well as something that 
could be a great sample going forward for the work that the client wants to do. You know, sometimes like I'm working on a script we're going to take out relatively shortly, and it is geared to be a sub $10 million, um, you know, piece for an actor in their 60s, 50s, 60s, or 70s, you know? So, but it's a thriller, you know? And so we're like, okay, maybe we can kind of do a version of like Harry Brown or something, the Michael Caine film, you know, where we're not going after the Brad Pitts. We're not going after, I mean, although I think he is now in his 50s, but we're not going after, you know, we're going after, you know, this yeah. would have been a great movie for Bob Hoskins, for example. I mean, obviously he passed away, but like, this is something for Morgan Freeman. This is something for, you know, an actor in that age range, you know, because um, it speaks to kind of like late in life vibe you know um so that's one strategy we're trying to do or that would be you know we were trying to put we're, we're aiming after an actor an age range that doesn't go doesn't get lead roles quite as often you know um so that's one way to do it you know i have another project that's a horror film um and that one we partner with a well-known horror producer we're in talks with directors so the idea would be to get a director on board maybe take some shots at actresses because it's led by an actress and then you know if we can get someone great if not it may not be the end of the world because it's a horror movie it's not quite as important as it would be for a drama piece and then yeah. go out and try to get it done you know i have another script that is a biopic and we have a great actress on board we have a great director on board we're trying to find an actor because it's a two-hander and then we would take it out and so you're trying to put all the pieces together in a way that maybe you wouldn't have 10 years ago when you could say this is a great script let's have the studio be our partner in helping us find people yeah one of your clients has a movie coming out in uh, just a couple of days a week now yeah, right? the, uh, the new texas chainsaw massacre, massacre. yes chris Devlin uh, wrote how that. did how, how did that how did that come about uh and uh what was what was your involvement and your and your your client's involvement i mean was this uh did you did did the did the was the studio looking for pitches? Was it something yep. you know they put together? How that how that work? Well, I'm I'm good friends with a, an, a guy named John Silk who was an executive at Legendary at the time, um, and so John and I were talking, or maybe he called me and he's like, "Yeah, we're looking for writers for Texas Chainsaw Massacre," um, and I flagged Chris Thomas Devlin, who I think he was already familiar with. Chris had written um, a bunch of great scripts, uh, had written Cobweb, which at the time had sold to Lionsgate. It actually that since went on to get made by a great director called Samuel Bowden with Vertigo, Roy Lee's company, and Point Grey, Seth Rogen, and Evan Goldberg's company producing, um, as well as John Berg, who worked at Vertigo at the time. Um, uh, so that already kind of was moving, I think, towards production at the time. I can't remember exactly. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, what about Chris? And so he either was already familiar with Chris or he read Chris. And he's like, yeah, this is great. Chris came in. I think Fede Alvarez was already on board to produce with his producing partner. Fede heard all the pitches, um, decided Chris was, I think, the, the best one. Um, had, but had a very singular vision for the film. And so um, Chris worked with um, Fede and his producing partner. Um, I mean, I think they ended up getting story credit, which gives you a clear idea of, of the level of their involvement um uh on it and so yeah that was that was kind of the experience on that one is a relatively straightforward it was i think around robin where they went to a bunch of people and then they decided that chris was the person they liked the best uh, and then chris worked on it all the way through nice uh, that was one of the more, yeah, that's that, a more straightforward story, I would say. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, that that that's, <laughs> seems like everything just kind of worked out there. I mean, although uh, what I would say is like Chris had a particular take. I don't know that that take, I think elements of that take ended up in the movie, but I think it was very much Fede had a vision and felt like Chris was the person to execute that vision. Hmm. Interesting. It, again, that comes out uh, on Netflix February 18th. In, 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 on, on the 18th. So check it out. 
Um, I, that was that was mostly what I wanted to ask. I mean, I, I, I do just have a general question. What is what is, you know, beyond trying to sell uh, scripts for your clients and that sort of thing? What 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 are what is your day to day like as a manager? I mean, what are what are you what sort of fires are you putting out? What sort of calls are you fielding? I mean, I I'm always kind of curious what uh, what what goes on behind the scenes when you know, uh, a writer or a director or somebody is kind of freaking out because something is is happening and calls you and says, what what do I do? <laughs> well, I mean, that's different from my day to day because that is thankfully not something that happens <laughs> a great deal. You know, I mean, look, when it comes to a crisis, you just try to, you're always asking yourself, honestly, the first question is how much leverage do I have, you know? And sometimes you have no leverage. Sometimes you just have to deal with the situation as it plays. And you can try to appeal to people's moral character or like doing the right thing. But like, you know, or basically be like, hey, if you do this, like I'm never like talking to you again. My company's never talking to you again because this what you're doing is completely wrong. Um, you know, but, uh, it, you know, you're you're really looking at the situation and being like, how can I manage this in a scenario where my my client gets the optimal outcome? But also being realistic about it. I didn't come up in an agency. I'm not a screamer. I'm not the kind of person where, you know, I'm going to. You know, where you're going to like start making death threats or something, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking like, how can I how can I represent my clients in, in the best way possible um, and, and still, you know, because sometimes you say crazy stuff and then the situation gets resolved. Like I had a situation where things went badly on, on, on with a with a producer and one of my clients and my client had a very clear they were like, I'm going to do X amount of work and that's that. And the producer was pushing them to do more. And we tried to find a compromise. Compromise didn't work. We kind of walked away. But like, you know, at the end of the day, feelings weren't brutalized the way that they might have been necessarily. Uh, and then, you know, it turned out actually that the producer found a studio who was willing to put money up to do the work. And so it all had a happy ending. And thankfully, I, you know, I didn't say like, you're the piece of shit. <laughs> I can say that. Uh, I, never, I never want to work with you ever again or whatever. So like it wasn't when we all came back together, it wasn't like we I had to like apologize for anything. All I could do was state where my p- client's opinion was, where the line in the sand was. And that's what we had to live and die by. You know, my day to day, honestly, it's 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 kind of like a writer's in a weird way where it really changes depending. It goes day to day. It really is different. You know, I'm probably going to be taking a script next week. So that's going to be a lot of phone calls and emails of getting the script out. You know, in a normal time, I honestly, pre-pandemic, I would take a script on a Monday or Tuesday, hope to get some responses by Friday. Nowadays, for whatever reason, you know, maybe because the market has slowed down, maybe because people are in their offices, I don't know. You know, it's for whatever reason, it feels like reads take a lot longer. So I probably won't get any, probably get some reads before by Friday. A lot of reads probably won't happen until the next week or the week after, you know. So you're kind of, you're putting together a list of the people to go to. You're going to them, can take a little minute to connect. You're getting them all the material out to people. You know, other than that, it's like reading new people, potentially meeting with new people if I like them, seeing if I connect with them. You know, meeting executives, meeting people around town, asking what they're looking for, sending over my clients material when I think that they could be a good fit for the opportunities that the person's looking for. You know, you're basically uh, you're working with your client, your pre-existing clients on their material, helping shape their careers. You're potentially finding new people, reading new people and and meeting with them about potentially signing with them. And you're going out there and you're meeting other people in town saying, hey, what are you looking for? Hey, I think these clients might be a good fit. That's kind of like the three buckets of what the day really is, you know, um, is dealing with dealing with those things, you know, 
So that's yeah. kind of what the day is. And it's just what configuration does that fit into your day. And I mean, that's one of the things I like about what I do for a living is that every day is not the same. It's not a nine to five thing. Now, look, that can be grueling because I can have to work quite late because I have a lot to deal with or I have like a bunch of reading to do. And then I go another day when it's pretty light and I can you know focus on clearing out my email inbox or reading new submissions. So but there is a certain unpredictability to it that is that is both gratifying in terms of being interesting, but also, I, I, you know, um, I think, you know, I don't have any children yet, um, but hoping to soon, but I have friends who do have children and it can be, you know, you know, it, yeah. it, the unpredictability is not helpful uh, when you need a little bit more stability in your life. Yeah, well, I can confirm that uh, as a as a child uh, a child having person myself. Um, I, uh, I believe the term for that I, is that, parent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, well, I don't want to, you know, I want to give myself a title here. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, that was everything I wanted to ask. I always like to end the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything, uh, you think folks should know about, uh, you know, the state of Hollywood or, you know, if, if, uh, how to break into the business, uh, you know, whatever, what do you, what do, what do, what should I have asked that I did not ask? Of you, I don't know. I, I don't know in terms of a question. I would say the one thing that I've encountered, this is more of a Twitter thing than anything, which obviously you and I are quite active on, is it's this, there's, I think there's a funny idea. And actually, you spoke to it earlier on where you're talking about your successful writer friends and the amount of rejection they still faced. I think there's a perception that once you sell a movie or get a movie made or that it's all easy street from then. And I think. You know, I was talking to a client yesterday who just got staffed on her first show, and I was so happy for her, and it's been a long road. And I was like, you know what? It's going to be easier going forward. It'll never be easy, but it'll be a little bit easier. It might be 10% easier going forward, you know? And I think that's the reality is when you do have successes or things that are perceived as success, it never gets easy, but it does get a little bit easier. So I think the thing I would say to be mindful of is when you look at someone who's having what you might perceive as a successful career, it's just to know that things are not always necessarily easy for them. And that, you know, everyone I think has their struggles and that it's a difficult industry. It's a, it's a very much a time of change in our industry and everyone's having, having, having a way to adjust to that. And I think that's the one thing I've kind of become more mindful of weirdly being more active on Twitter and, and, and seeing kind of like, pylons and being the subject of pylons is that it sounds, I guess, a little cliche, a little Hallmark Cardi, but everyone's going through their own battles necessarily. And just because someone is perceived as successful and therefore should never be able to complain or or therefore it should be easy or they should be rich or whatever, is it, it does not necessarily make it so. And so I think that is something I'm trying to keep in mind every day um, is having kind of is, is giving people, I guess, a little bit more leeway or grace because everyone's got their thing that they're going on. So I think that's the funny, interesting thing with the career is you can have someone who's been nominated for an Oscar and they're still maybe being like, oh, my God, is this is this uh, am I still am I still a viable person in this business? It, there's a certain insecurity that never quite goes away in this business. And uh, I think the business is not unaware of that in terms of how they treat people um, a little bit like they're disposable or what have you done for me lately kind of situation. So mm. that's it. I think I would just try to be, you know, if there's something out there that people should know about the business and it's that um, it's a fickle business. Um, and just because someone seems more successful than you are doesn't mean that they are necessarily um, everything's perfect in their life, you know, and to grant them a little bit of grace. 
Yeah. Be nice to people on the internet. That is that is a general that is a good general in all rule. Things, certainly would it would be nice <laughs> and it's weird. I feel like people would be much nicer to people in real life than they necessarily do uh to the random ideas. But I guess like it's like you know, the deadline commenters or something like that. They're like, yet another thing or whatever. Like, you know, I always think of like the movie reviewers when they're reviewing a movie and they're like, the script sucked by so and so. And I'm like, so and so is clearly a terrible writer. I'm like, man, I guarantee you that however you think that if you think the movie was bad, the writer probably agrees with you. Maybe not the specific review, but like I always thought that was funny. I remember when I first had my first internship in Hollywood, I asked my boss, I was like, oh man, blah. He's like, oh, so and so is a good writer. I'm like, really? I just saw that new movie. It sucked. And then they wrote it. And he's like, and the, and the guy was like, he's like, if a movie is bad, the writer is the least person to blame for it. You know, he's like, the first person is probably the studio and then it's the direct then it's the movie star then it's the director or it was, it was something like that right like the it's like who's yeah. the most powerful person in the situation and that's kind of where you want to ascribe the blame and by the way the writer's probably like number seven or eight on that chart which a <laughs> speaks to the reality situation but also speaks to like the craziness of hollywood at the person who is credited with writing the screenplay has the least influence on the whole thing yeah uh, yes, that's another thing I've learned from my screenwriter friends is it's never it's almost never the writer's fault for what you see on the on the no screen. No one's ever like, There's yeah, we wanted the director wanted to do, it, but the writer said we couldn't do it. So therefore, I mean, in television, yes, television is a whole different beast, which we didn't really touch on at all in our conversation. But uh, but yeah, it, it features no one's ever like, yeah, I wanted the, the movie star really wanted to, like, give his character a dog. But the writer said they wouldn't have it. So therefore, we just said, OK, I guess we can't do it. I guess that's it. And in reality, they're like, and you're fired. And we're getting a writer. And what is what is the mandate for the new writer? Get the movie star a dog. Okay, done. <laughs> done. The movie star, the character now is a dog. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe well, next time we can talk about TV because that is a whole different, a whole different kettle of fish. Um, but thank you very much for being on, John. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, check out the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie on Netflix on February 18th. Everyone is uh, super excited about that. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark, and uh, I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.